welcome to The Great Collide, where we explore the intersection between politics and faith. I'm Leanne Noland. And I'm Jasmine Taylor. In his book, The Persuaders, Anand Jirahakaris profiles activists who are using bold ways to convince Americans to change their point of view. Our guest today believes that helping people paint the beautiful tomorrow can change minds inside and outside the church. Let's welcome Reverend Dr. Craig Howard, who is the Executive Presbyter of the Presbytery of Chicago, representing nearly 23,000 Presbyterians in the Chicago area. What does it mean to paint the beautiful tomorrow? When I read the concept in the book, The Persuaders, I immediately thought about how many times I go to a church and they have their mission statement written on their bulletin. And there's often things like, you know, we're a friendly church, we're a welcoming church, you know. And the the push is to flesh that out. In other words, what if you really were a friendly church? What does that look like in real life, in real activity? So a, fr- a friendly church, for example, uh, would be a church in which we enjoy the company of the children and adults in our community. Um, All people, no matter the age or gender or or racial ethnicity, find a home in activities and worship here. The other aspect of the concept of painting the beautiful tomorrow is that you are less dependent upon words and more depending upon images. And it goes back to our challenge as being an educated clergy, where we are steeped in the use of words and, and using uh, multi-symbolic words are even better because it makes us look more intelligent. But what people need is something that they can visually uh, uh, imagine. And and a third part about the idea of a beautiful tomorrow is a positive tomorrow. It's something that attracts us to a mission and ministry, and not so much what we stand against in mission and ministry. Um, I was raised uh, in the Pentecostal uh, holiness tradition, And I'm going back now to the way the holiness tradition was at the turn of the uh, 20th century when it came out of the 1800s. And it really defined itself. It was supposed to be all about love, but it defined itself about what holiness did not do. We don't smoke. We don't drink. We don't dance. And um, my great grandfather was a holiness bishop. And. By the time it it got down to me, um, we began to ask the questions, well, what do we do? And what is it, what are the positive aspects of what does it mean to be holiness or Pentecostal? How do we embrace uh, love and the love for our uh, siblings? So the challenge here is how do we talk about what we stand for versus what we stand against? And this becomes very challenging even when I think about uh, anti-gun violence, right? It's uh, anti-racism. It's the anti that 
people sometimes they it's like oh there's something that you know that I can't do or it's a no in there uh, instead of saying uh, we want safety um, we want equality across colors of people so it's that's that's the other side of that what does that mean paint the beautiful tomorrow give me some examples of it. yeah so we have a mission statement uh, in our presbytery that talks about um us flourishing uh as congregations in the community as pursuing uh worship and so those are beautiful words but to pursue worship means to experience something. And we have to push, drill down and ask, what is it I'm trying to experience in worship that, that makes it looks like what I call excellence in worship, right? So one of the pursuits would be um, that we encapture a vision of God, a vision of heaven in worship. And, and, and I and I look I take that from personal experience of when I'm in church and and you have that moment when this thing is this is happening this is wonderful and it often happens when it could be through the music it could be through the sermon it could be through the liturgy but somewhere something says this is how it's supposed to be meaning life meaning how we love one another care for one another. Uh, meaning how we prioritize our values. And, and that happens in worship. And so instead of just saying pursue worship, we could say we uh, encompass a vision of God's kingdom, a vision of what life can be inside of this church. So that's an example. Um, and that's right off the top of my head. Um, another one I like is when we talk about what does it mean to be in community? And I I challenge my presbytery to imagine people coming out of worship back into the community. What do you see? And I often, to help myself with this stuff, I often actually think about children. What does a child look like who's just had a wonderful time in church and they come outside, they're happy, they're skipping, they're dancing, they're, in, they're, they're like, whatever, whatever life has, bring it on because I'm feeling good, right? And so how do we then verbalize that to say that we leave worship with joy, with smiles, with laughter, uh, there's this, the thing that sometimes church, maybe, uh, maybe we should talk more about is playfulness and, and how when we have encountered the divine, that there's something that has been freed inside of us that wants to play and risk and give life and people a chance. And that's, that's an example of what does it mean then to be a church in community? So those are a couple of examples. We've talked a lot about the importance of imagery. Why do you think images are so much more persuasive or powerful over just using words? I, I, re, I hate to date myself, but I remember when uh, MTV uh, first came out. 
right? Videos. And I remember for the first time, you could listen to a song and see people do stuff. They're, they're dancing. Then it went from just first it was just stand behind a mic and talk. Then it got into story, right? And, and doing different kind of story based upon the song. Then frankly, it got to doing different kind of story and sometimes it had nothing to do with the song. But the, 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 the whole key and what drove people was the, the imagery and story, which are often combined. Because as, as humans, we are driven by story. I was raised on story uh, with my mom. Uh, whenever we would ask mom a question, she would never just say, do this or that or whatever. She would always give us a story. And with the story, you got to kind of figure out, you know, okay, that means whatever. And, and I guess it's also a challenge to our intellect. But story drives people. Images drive story. And that's where I see the connection and value between painting that beautiful tomorrow. Where do you see this technique in the Bible? I think it, it is the Bible, right? I think that when we, um, I mean, there, there, are, there are parts of the Bible that are uh, just words or theology. Uh, uh, God was uh, born in the flesh, manifest in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received in the glory. I mean, these these are words, but even those words are images, right? Um, but the, the, a lot of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible is story. It's story with, uh, with a predictable and unpredictable images. And, and our first challenge is just to figure out what just happened here, and then the challenge to figure out where is God in what happened here. And so the Bible is, again, giving us story and then challenging us to find the divine in the midst of that story because our lives are a story, and God is in our lives. And the question then becomes, where is the spirit moving in our lives? Are, do we have the courage to look for, for, for her and to recognize her and, and then be motivated by that as far as our actions go? So I definitely see a connection between story and Bible, uh, gospels, uh, a Hebrew Bible, uh, and, and again, it's it's throughout. So we know a, a few people who can be stuck in their ways. We all we, we all have a couple of people like that in our lives. And so if folks are already rigid in their point of view, will will this idea really help change minds? I think the 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 first challenge is that be about being careful to enter into relationships or conversations with the goal of changing someone that perhaps the way change happens is really through relationships i'm in a uh a mixed race marriage and my in-laws are rural missouri and and if you put us next to one another, you would say they got nothing in common, okay? And, and yet, every Thanksgiving, I'm invited to that table. And 
even asked to pray sometimes. And through these 19 years, I've come to appreciate what it means to be a farmer and to be solely independent and the ways in which you have to guard your property and your land. There is no, you don't call it a sheriff. You have to deal with the, the wild animals that come to, to destroy your herd. And, and so that understanding helps inform the values of my in-laws. And even though we don't have the same values, I can appreciate where they're coming from. And I think they appreciate where I'm coming from. Because most importantly, we found that uh, they love their grandchildren. And I love my, they're, they're, they're my nieces and nephews. I love them as well. And that there is a commonality even in the midst of this uh, separation of values. So one of the challenges that uh, the persuaders does is it talks about having percentages of things in common. It's kind of a complex thing, but the bottom line is they found that when, let's say, uh, you only have uh, 75% of things in common with me, they found that people tend to focus on the 25% they don't have in common instead of focusing on the 75% that they do have in common. Um, and then I, I just believe that that if a person never comes around to my perspective, that even that appreciation can at least stop us from trying to, my phrase, blow each other up. Um, the other thing I'll throw out there is a challenge to appreciate the complexity of people. We often think people are this or that. They stand here or they stand there. I was uh, born in the projects. I was raised in the suburbs. I went to public schools. Then I went to a private Catholic university, a, a uh, Presbyterian seminary. I'm an African-American, and I lead a denomination that is 88% white. I have voted Republican, and I have voted Democrat. There is no way to look at the color of my skin or my gender and determine what I think, what I value, etc., where I stand. And where I stand truly is not so solid in stone, but it's also fluid. And so I think that my complexity is, is small compared to others in our society. And sometimes we have to say, they may not be where we are. Let me get to know them, get to understand them. And perhaps over time, we'll see how this goes. I'll, I'll also add, the person I am today, I was not this person 20 years ago in my viewpoints, perspectives, and values. And so I have to give other people a chance to change over time and not be persuaded by my wonderful sermon right or or a great conversation so so i would just throw those ideas out there so you talk about the separation of values and relationships and and all of those things and right now we're seeing denominations that are being torn apart over the issue of lgbtq and inclusion can you will this technique help that division when we look at why this nation turned a corner 
on gay rights. And again, it was it was like almost caught everyone by surprise. But most people say it happened because someone had a gay nephew, a, a lesbian aunt. Um, in other words, they had an experience with people and realized that they weren't the boogeyman, that they are loving human beings, that we are all loving human beings together. And I think this labeling and, and, and trying to create monsters is part of the problem. And it's, I believe, I believe there's intentionality behind that. And so to combat it is we have to learn to imagine a future where people are seen as people and not with all these various labels. But let me be clear about this. I am very proud to be African-American and I am who I am because I am African-American. I am not saying let's go to some colorblind or genderblind situation. Understand that all that we are makes us who we are, right? And so we have to, if you're going to love me, then you're going to have to accept those aspects of me. They're not to be hidden, to be denied, uh, to be covered up. So that's not what I'm saying. I am saying is that part of being human is to live in that complexity. And, and the beauty of what's happening in this time in our lives, in our country, is that what used to be shameful, hidden, uh, is now being allowed to exist. And the understanding of, even back to that word, of the fluidity of gender which has always been there, always. It's just now having a chance to come into the sunlight and to exist. And it's, 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 a, it's a beautiful thing. So I think that if we can look at our current situation and the first question to ask ourselves is, what would be the beautiful future I could imagine? And then the next question is, okay, what do we have right now? And then finally, how do we need to change to get there? What actions do I need to take today so that I can help to live into that tomorrow that I envision? So, yeah, and, and so being humans, back to now, back to, you know, what I call back to this reality, uh, being humans, people are going to find ways to, to, uh, to separate. I would also argue for a certain patience with history, not the patience, uh, you, have to, you have to put this uh, juxtaposition with uh, Dr. King's letter from Birmingham jail. Right. When uh, they were telling him, just wait, you know, just wait for justice. Don't push this thing. And he talked about why we can't wait. Part of the patience of history is that there are movements that move rapidly and then things get frozen or even maybe take a step back. But you got to believe that the arc of that of the universe bends towards justice. And so saying a setback. Is not the final version of the story, but 
to envision a future where we can take another more closer step further to God's kingdom, God's beautiful kingdom, and be a part of that. I think that's the challenge that we have. Reverend Howard, this has been a powerful conversation. Um, As we look at the issues that continue to face the church, and there's a myriad of them, um, how would you paint the beautiful tomorrow in confronting some of those? Yeah. Yeah, I think that that, you know, there's, there's, you know, big, the word church, the big word. Um, and I would actually seek to uh, focus on particular questions or particular issues and, and see how the church, the church, the church is full of the people. The church is the people. And to see if, Following Jesus can help us to make a difference of a particular issue. So I would I would not imagine the church big picture, but if I dare, there is something that I say about the Presbyterian Church, this this denomination that uh, has a wonderful history and has done tremendous things um, in the city of Chicago and in this in this country. Um, but the future of the Presbyterian Church is not a future of, of one, but of many. It's a future of how do we work together with others in order to achieve God's vision of the world. It's a future in which uh, we are so accustomed to being in the lead, to being in control. But in this future, we may not be leading it. We may be following we may be helping others uh, to lead it, um, and we may not be controlling it. Uh, we may be uh, part of, of, of others that are doing the work. Uh, I, I think about last year, and each year, St. Sabinus Catholic Church does this march beginning of uh, uh, the summer at the end of school. And what they simply do is they gather a nice crowd and we march from the church and we walk through the neighborhood and we end back up at the church. Now, the amazing thing about this march is that while we are marching, kids come outside to play. They're jumping rope, they're throwing the ball around, they're chasing each other, doing kid stuff because they feel safe. The fact that we marched they feel safe, right? So that speaks volumes of, you could talk anti-gun, anti-violence, anti, that is the reality. And the other beautiful part of it is Presbyterians are in it, but we're not running it. We're part of it. We're not even showboating. Hey, Presbyterians. No, that's not what it's about. It's about being part of this ecumenical body, that's doing this work, that's creating this God safety for this community. And that's that's a future vision of the church right there. Wow, amazing. So I say thank you, Reverend Dr. Howard. The idea of creating the future world in which we want to see is amazing. And, and this painting of beautiful tomorrow is awesome. That is all of the time we have today. And I ask that you be sure to download all of our episodes, subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform, leave us a review. And most importantly, 
importantly, go and tell your friends. Go to gcbm.org for all of the links. The Great Collide is a production of the Greater Chicago Broadcast Ministries, a communications ministry of the Protestant, Orthodox, and Episcopal Churches of Greater Chicago, in cooperation with the Council of Religious Leaders of Metropolitan Chicago. I'm Jasmine Taylor. And I'm Leanne Noland. Keep the faith.